Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. This week we're into episode four and shining a spotlight on the prevalence of mental illness, something that in its many forms affects one in four Australians. Craig Hamilton was a high profile sports broadcaster for the ABC when in September 2000, on the eve of his assignment for the Sydney Olympic Games, he experienced a major psychotic episode in public that led to him being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Craig spent 12 days in hospital and once he recovered, set out to spread the word on mental health awareness. Listen in as we chat with Craig about stigma, identity and the episode that led him to become a voice for change. All right, welcome Craig Hamilton to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. Thanks very much for your time and what a pleasure it is to have you here with me today. No, great to be here. So Craig, uh, you, I guess if you just want to start with a little bit of background, you were born and bred in Newcastle, is that correct? I was born about 80... Singleton. Singleton, okay. yeah, which is about 80 kilometres north of Newcastle. I came off a dairy farm, Dad was a dairy farmer, and when I left school, which was just before I was 18, I moved to Newcastle to take up a job as a coal miner, and that was my first job out of school. So I was underground in a mine before I was 18. Wow. That, I guess that was somewhat normal back then, was it? To, I mean, Newcastle especially. Yeah, well, at the time, uh, this was the early 80s, early 1980s, coal mining was, you know, at peak of its, you know, it was a boom. And so there was a lot of jobs going in the mines and a lot of uh, my friends took mining jobs. It was the only job I'd ever applied for. I didn't think really, I didn't think twice about what I was going to do for a living. I had no idea what I wanted to do out of school. Needed a job, there's a job, applied for it, got it, and that's, the rest was history. There you go, so, so 16 years you were in that, uh, in that job, but on the side of that, in, in, is it whilst you were doing that job in 91, you began doing some stuff with the ABC? Uh, yeah, it was around about 91. I, uh, I, I was a good cricketer, you know, I, I, I represented as a cricketer, and the, I had an opportunity to do a bit of radio down in Canberra, at a, at a match down there, and it was really, looking back, it was a fork in the road moment, because if I don't do the radio, take the radio opportunity during this game, then maybe I'm still in a mind today. I don't know, but it gave me the, the chance to see, hey, I like this, I'm good at this, and someone could see that I, I could play a role as a publicity officer with Newcastle Cricket, and that's where my first media experience was. And that, from that point on, I decided this is what I want to do, and I set a sort of single-minded goal to work toward, towards that. And so the, the cricket 
side of things, were you playing as well as uh, as well as commentating at the same time? Like, well, yeah, I was in, I was playing in that game, um, and and how the commentary uh, role came about was that there was a radio station broadcasting the game, so they were doing some commentary, ball by ball descriptions of the match that I was playing in. So the only opportunity, obviously, couldn't do it when we were fielding, but when we were batting. Um, I batted well down the order. I think I was number nine or number ten. So as soon as the innings started, I'm obviously not going to be required for a long time, hopefully. <laughs> um, so that made it possible for me to go down and do, you know, a 40-minute slot uh, on, on the radio, which I did. And so then when you went back to Newcastle, then uh, you, were, uh, you were in all in the game. Is that right? Is, is that, that's what that initial program was called. And then in 95, you went to the sideline eye. Is that correct for... That's, is that when you first dabbled in the rugby league commentary? Yeah, pretty much. It was 19... Uh, back end of 1994, okay. I had a few matches. 1995 was the first full season that I worked for Grandstand. Uh, Peter Wilkins was the caller at that time. Warren Ryan, uh, who's a you know, very well-known rugby league coach. He coached Canterbury. Yeah. He coached the Tigers. He was our expert commentator and I was our sideline commentator in, in 95. So that was the first first year I, I did it. And was rugby league something you always had a passion for or was it just sort of an opportunity that you um, that sort of fell, fell in your lap a little bit uh, with the cricket that was happening as well on the, on the side? I just had a passion for sport okay. uh, in general. So I'm very passionate about my cricket. Uh, I'd played rugby union. Yep. Uh, I was an average rugby player. I'd played in, in the bush, yep. in country rugby union. Um, and rugby league was something I'd played a bit of, but not a lot. But it was still a game I loved, absolutely loved. So I was passionate about all sports. I'd followed rugby league very, co- uh, very closely. And so to, it, it was a very easy transition. I didn't find it difficult to mm-hmm. be put on the sideline, have a uh, headset on, have a microphone with me. And working with Peter Wilkins and with Warren Ryan, Two of the best in the business. I mean, they were That's able to. Great company there. Great company, great educators. Uh, Wilco gave me an education in broadcasting, and Warren gave me an education in rugby league. So it was, uh, and we were a great team. We were a great team altogether. Yeah. So then, uh, and then in 1999, you went into full-time radio. Is that that's the first leap that you went all in? So about eight years later, and and how did you find that? Well, uh, I actually left the mines in 1997 okay. uh, because my media role had got so big, if you like, that I could no longer do mining and media. I, I, up until that point, I was juggling the two, and yeah. I had a young family, and I was basically never home through the through the uh, rugby league season. Yeah. But the price, uh, and looking back, the price paid there saw me get out of a mine and into a broadcast box. That was the price to be paid, was the fact that I had to work incredibly hard. It just didn't happen. Uh, So I left the mines in 1997. I became a freelance media, uh, you know, operator, if you like. I wrote columns. I did MC work. I hosted trivia nights. Yeah. uh, As well as supplementing income with what I was already doing with the ABC. So... uh, it, I was able to make uh, make some money. It wasn't a lot of money. It was enough to sort of keep things ticking over. We extended our mortgage. 
to make sure we could pay the minimum amount yeah. of, of payments. But it was a, uh, it was an interesting time, challenging time. Family backed me one hundred percent because they could see that that's what I wanted to do, and I did that for two years. And then in nineteen ninety nine, there was a full time job with the ABC came up. I applied for it and got it. And that's that was based in Newcastle then in ninety nine mm. the full time role. Yes. Yeah. It was based in Newcastle, but I was then able to continue to do what I'd been doing, which was there was a lot of Sydney travel. There's still a lot of Sydney travel on weekends to to cover the rugby league for seven months of the year. But the good thing was uh, when I would come back from Sydney, I'd have my weekend. You know, it might be a Monday and a Tuesday, but I'd get two days off, whereas previously I had no days off. And how did you juggle that with, uh, I'm I'm assuming you had a young family during that period. Was that tough on the family? Was it, uh, obviously they were supportive of you and what you wanted to do, but was it tough? Well, that's a question better directed the way of my wife. (laughs) But she would say so. And look, it was. I've got no doubt it was. Because um, we we did have young children. Uh, You know, our kids at that time were nine, seven and three. Wow. So busy time. Busy time. Busy time. So it was, uh, you know, it was a challenge. There's no doubt. Uh, it was a challenge for me to be, you know, doing that travelling and working. But I've got no doubt uh, that it was a, a big challenge for Louise because she was uh, doing a lot of that stuff herself. Did Did you ever contemplate or think that uh, back when you were going through school that this is what you wanted to do and this is what you would end up doing for a, a full time job? Um, no, I never thought that it could be a job. Yeah, right. You know, I was one of those kids that would commentate while I was playing as a kid. <laughs> so if I was playing in a backyard game and I was, you know, eight, nine years old, I would be the commentator as well as one of the players. Is commentating different to sledging? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, uh, if you're commentating, you are doing uh, a professional job yeah. by the time you... Uh, working professionals. Oh, so yeah, for sure. No, no room for sledging. But I, it, it, if you're talking about the experience the back, the as a kid yeah. in the backyard, <laughs> then if I was commentating, the two didn't mix. You can't commentate <laughs> and sledge. You're doing one or the other. <laughs> well, that's a fine line. I'm sure you tread it pretty well. Country, obvious, uh, country cricket was mm. uh, a passion and, and a highlight of your career was playing against the Sri Lankan team. Yeah. Uh, what year was that? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was 1990. 1990, mm. when they were touring. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That would have been quite an honour and quite an experience. It was. Yeah. It was an incredible honour. It's uh, still a highlight, yeah. I think, of of, uh, of uh, my cricket career. Like, I got to play against some of the best players in Australia through different matches, uh, like the War Brothers and Mark yeah. Taylor, uh, Mike Whitney, Robert Holland, Gary oh. Gilmore. So... All the top players of, of that era. I had, I had one match where I played against Gordon Greenwich from the West Indies. So these oh. were in separate matches. Yeah. But as far as playing in a match against an international team, then Sri Lanka was it. And that day there was about six or seven of their test side in that, in that team. And we played at Grafton in New South Wales. And, uh, yeah, got very fond memories of, of that match. Oh. What an experience. And then, uh, so as we get closer, so 99, you moved into a full-time radio role. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, this is obviously um, prior to your ex- the experience that, uh, that you went through prior to the Sydney Olympics. Mm-hmm. 
did you ever um, what was did you ever feel like or think that you would be a person that would be subject to a, a mental health illness never never if you just said uh, that even six months before I had that psychotic episode a few days before the Olympics that it was going to happen I would have not believed it never in the in the in the wide world was it even on my radar that it could happen interesting mm. you do mention that uh, you think there was was it you thought there was two types of people one the people that never thought they would be struck with a mental illness mm. and the other the people that are subject to a, a mental health challenge yeah uh, is that still the view or do you feel like because uh, I know back then you thought you were in the, certainly in the bracket where you didn't have thought it would happen to you mm. but since I guess mental health uh, nowadays the, the statistics are around one in four one in five people uh, will get uh, a mental health uh, mental ill health at some point in their life uh, and certainly you will know someone with a uh, mental health challenge in their life as well so do you still think that there's in that two groups of people or look the you're right, that was my prevailing view at the time, that okay. there was only two groups. You either thought, um, you know, you were either struggling with a mental health issue or you were in the group that thought they could never be affected. These days, with the increased awareness around mental health issues, the fact that they've, to, to a much larger degree, they've been normalised, the stigma's been reduced, I think more people question their their own mental health when they wouldn't have before. Yes. They, they keep more of an eye on themselves. They monitor their health levels a bit more. Maybe they look after themselves a bit more. They look at their work-life balance a bit more, which possibly didn't happen previously and certainly, mm -hmm. didn't, certainly didn't happen in my case because I had this... I was oblivious to the fact that uh, it could be me and thought, you know, like a lot of Australian men... You're ten foot tall and bulletproof, and yeah. particularly in the area of, of mental health. So I think it's changing, and that's a good thing. The more aware people are of their own mental health, the better. The better it is, and it's not. It's not a case of being paranoid about it. It's not a case of waking up every day and, you know, going, "How am I going to be today?" It's a process, an ongoing sort of awareness about how you feel. Looking back over those six months leading into the episode that, that happened, I, I, do you now see the signs? Was there taps on the shoulder, so to speak, that something was, was not quite right? Look, 2020 vision, I can look back over my whole life and yeah. say there were signs there. I mean, if yeah. I go back even to my teenage days, I can now recognise there were mood swings. I had highs and lows when I was in my teenage years. Wow. Now, they weren't severe enough at the time yes. to be a problem, right? There was nothing diagnosed. There was no sort of indication there that sometimes I was a bit high, sometimes I was a bit low. As I say, these swings were moderate. So I can now look back and say, yeah, that happened. I was 14, 15. I certainly went through periods where I was withdrawn. I certainly went through periods where I was, had excess energy, yeah. If I look at 1999, the year before, um, you know, psychosis and depression, or well, depression actually happened first. Depression, Is that right? yeah, throughout. 
throughout um, 19, uh, sorry, throughout 2000, I was depressed first because for seven months and then the Olympics were due to start in September. Uh, and then uh, I'd, be, I'd experienced psychosis. The year before, 1999, I can now look back at and say I was elevated the whole year. My mood was up. I was, you know, uh, not manic, but certainly uh, I had an elevated mood. So I was up uh, for, for 12 months. And so, uh, so a bit about the the episode that happened leading up to the. Do you want to just explain a little bit more about, about mm-hmm. how it came along and, yep. and what uh, and share that experience? Yeah, sure. Well, in short, from December, uh, sorry, from January two thousand, I can remember uh, not feeling great. I can remember that I had the early symptoms of, um, you know, fatigue. I had social withdrawal. I had trouble concentrating. Um, So, and then those symptoms, I had anxiety as well. I'd never experienced anxiety, which was unpleasant. And those symptoms just continued on and got uh, progressively worse uh, through January, through February, through March, through April. My sleep pattern was all over the place. I couldn't sleep. I'd be awake at night um, thinking. So the, the process how that was playing out was very debilitating, hugely debilitating because it was getting worse each day. And by the time I got to June or July of that year, I had uh, negative thoughts, just negative thoughts initially. I couldn't see the bright side of any situation, regardless of what it was. And that then, uh, still hadn't been to a doctor and still hadn't told anyone. So this was all internalized? All internalized, all internalized. Your family? No, they could see that I was struggling, but they weren't sure what was happening. I hadn't put two and two together and worked out that this is a depressed mood. I knew I had these symptoms and I didn't feel great, but I still had no real idea that this was depression. If you put all of these symptoms together, you come up with a depressed mood. That's what it is. I still didn't go to the doctor, and it was now uh, June, like July, yes. and the the um, negative thoughts morphed into despairing thoughts because I haven't had a good day for seven months. Wow. I haven't had a good day, and you know I'm by this stage very depressed, still working, but basically a case of um, presenteeism, not absenteeism. I'm turning up to work, but I'm not getting much done. Did they notice anything at work during that period? No, they didn't because, and this is the interesting thing, I get asked that question quite a bit, surely someone at work would have noticed, but they had nothing to compare it to. Okay. I'd only been working for the ABC for six months. Yeah, right. So it was not a, it, they would have noticed, I'm sure, if I'd been there for three or four years and yeah. gone from the stage where this is his output, right? This yeah. is what he can do. This yes. is the work, like, the, you know, this is the work ethic. Yes. Um, and now we compare it to this, there would have been a clear difference. Whereas they had nothing to measure this against. I was doing my best, I was putting on an incredibly bright face okay. to say, you know, I'm coping, which I think a lot of people do. And by July, I'm desperate and uh, having suicidal thoughts yes. and finally to doctor. 
So, uh, and in short, treated for depression initially. So no signs of um, uh, bipolar. No um, signs of bipolar at that point. Well, I presented with depression, and most people with bipolar disorder do, because if you're in the high state or the manic state, you don't, don't go to the doctor because you feel a million yeah. bucks. You only go when you're really, really depressed. Yeah. And so it was just a diagnosis of depression, which happens a lot of the time with people with bipolar. They're diagnosed incorrectly. And within five weeks on taking medication, that's when I was high, manic, psychotic. After that? After that, yeah. And we, we now know that because of that bipolarity, putting or throwing a an antidepressant into okay. the mix rather than a mood stabiliser is like throwing fuel on a fire. You know, it, it can initiate a high. And it did. It did. And, you know, when you're bipolar 1, you don't have a ceiling on your high. You go right through the range of elevated mood to full-blown mania to psychosis. And uh, that happened three days before the Olympics. Wow. And so you were uh, hospitalised? Yes. After that? Yes. So it was a 12-hour... Was it a 12-hour incident uh, with the the psychosis event? The event where you... um, The psychotic episode where you... Uh, were, you, were you walking down the street or something? Or? No, I was on a, I was on a uh, train platform. On a train. Yeah, I was on a pl- uh, train platform ready to catch a train to go to the Olympic Games. Wow. So my family don't know I'm psychotic. Um, my doctor doesn't know I'm psychotic. And I certainly don't know I'm psychotic. Psychotic. No one knows. We, we, this is all new ground. Yeah. This is, uh, for all intents and purposes, you look okay up until the point that you start behaving erratically and start to become completely unhinged and I became aggressive, verbally aggressive and if you do that on a train station you attract attention to yourself and I did and the police were called okay. and I was um, you know, basically handcuffed, put in the back of a um, paddy wagon because I you know, fought that you know, I took yeah. the police on. I didn't want to go in the, in the wagon, and no. so I was in that psychotic state. And then, very quickly after that, diagnosed with bipolar one, which led to a twelve-day hospital admission. Do you uh, do you think the the process uh, of that is it is it something that you think is improved since? Because this is two thousand. We're now in in two thousand nineteen, almost twenty years later. Mm. How do you feel like the uh, the earlier diagnosis or the or the prevention uh, of bipolar is has advanced since two thousand? Well, I hope it's better. <laughs> I think I think uh, certainly the bipolar disorder, the, the mood, uh, the severe uh, mood uh, disorders are diagnosed better because there is more awareness. Yes. There is more. There is more knowledge, and I think even most GPs, when someone presents with depression, I think now I'd comfortably say that most are scratching the surface to see if there is a bipolar mood disorder underneath that depression and just don't assume that it's just depression. I would like to think that's still the case because that's the key. 
early diagnosis and the right medication. Because, um, in other words, in short, if, if, if you came to me tomorrow, and I'm a GP, yes. and you present as, you know, extremely depressed, suicidal, yes. and I'm going to diagnose you and look forward, you know, and look where do we go next, Sam, with this, I want you to tell me what you were doing six months ago, what you were doing 12 months ago. Now, if you were dancing on tables at nightclubs and spending money and, and heading overseas and, and uh, maxing out your credit card on holidays you didn't want, uh, gambling, drinking, taking drugs, then I'm looking pretty closely at a bipolar disorder, not just a depression, yeah. because they're the two sides of the equation. You might just be depressed, yes. but there's a big difference if you are bipolar as, a, as opposed to uh, just having depression, garden variety depression, if you like, and the treatment is so much different. Yes. So, so post-diagnosis, so you've been diagnosed, um, tell me about the support from your family, the understanding friends, and, and the work uh, side of it as well. How, how, did, how did they react, and what did they do to support you? I had um, first world care. I had first world support from my workplace, the ABC. They were employing me then, they're employing me today. Uh, my family were fantastic, uh, and my friends were fantastic. I didn't lose a friend through this whole experience. I mean, my, there might have been people in my life that dropped away yes. um, and became, you know, further removed, they were still in my distance. life, but they're mm. yeah, a little more distant, and that's fine. I mean, that happens regardless whether yes. you have a, a mental yeah. breakdown or not. But the key people uh, are still there, and that safety net, if you like, was there. And because of that, I was able to re make a full recovery. And because of that, I can do what I do today. I can go and speak. I was able to write a couple of books and be open and honest about my experience. For many people, for many Australians, they don't, or they lose the job, they can't keep the job after something like a psychotic episode and, and ongoing uh, poor uh, mental health. They, their relationships explode, their family unit blows up, yes. their friends are gone, and because they don't have a job, they can no longer afford medication that may keep them well so it's like a you know it's like a a roller door uh, what am i looking like you know it's, it's the, a downward spiral it's well it's a downward spiral and it just continues it's cyclical uh, bipolar certainly so uh, all i had the best support in the world that's the that's the that's the point and do you think the the fact that you're so open about the whole thing and willing to talk about it helped with that compared to other people where you feel like they either lose their job, their, their marriage breaks down, family falls apart. Mm -hmm. um, do, what, what, do you think, what do you think differentiates um, so the people that can survive and thrive uh, mm -hmm. and push through it and mm -hmm. the people that really struggle? Well, I didn't want anyone to know 
uh, for a long time. I wasn't public and open and transparent and honest about what happened to me for a long time. And I'm saying years here. I, I didn't have a choice about it being a public story because it, the yeah. episode happened in a public place. Yes. And in Newcastle, I had a media profile yes. at that stage. And people knew, a lot of people in Newcastle knew who I was. They knew I worked on rugby league uh, yes. for the ABC. They knew I was off to the Olympics. I had identification all over me. So it wasn't simply a case of pretending it didn't happen. Um, things, stories like that circulate very quickly. So, but as far as being comfortable in telling the story, uh, that happened years later. I came out of hospital, my family and friends and even the local media in Newcastle shut the whole thing down. There could have been uh, a front page story without a shadow of a doubt on the Newcastle Herald broadcaster has a major episode, psychosis on train station. They could have written that. The local uh, television station, NBN, could have had it on their news. The ABC could have reported it. The commercial radio stations could have reported it. But they went down the path of this is important. This is, if we publicise this, this is going to impede this guy's chance of a full recovery. So I had all those people who were supporting me and it was, I came out of hospital, I was lost for 12 months, worried about whether it was going to happen again, and apprehensive. And then as I slowly could see myself recovering and getting better and work was getting better and I was clear-minded and it was, you know, a year after that, a year after that, that I thought that I could talk about this and be open with just about anyone um, and then got asked to write a book about 2004. So four years after the event, I was completely happy to make the story public. Yeah, so 2004, The Broken Open, that's the name of the book? Yeah. Broken Open. Uh, and, and that was all about your story about living with bipolar disorder? Well, it was a memoir, so it covered my life from the time growing up in Singleton as okay. a kid and growing, you know, the whole mapping out the story probably in more detail than yes. we've talked about today, being on the Obviously. farm, playing the, you know, the junior sport, the mates, the yeah. going into the mines, uh, the cricket days, all of that's covered. But the focus, the ma- major focus of the book is on the mental breakdown, the yes. diagnosis with depression, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And it goes, it's a bit of a, I suppose, a medical um, book in a, lot of, in a lot of ways because there's chapters, there's breakout chapters in there yes. describing what the symptoms of bipolar are, yes. describing what the symptoms of anxiety are, what the symptoms of depression are. My psychiatrist writes a chapter. Two of my friends write chapters. Well. My wife writes a chapter. So they all get to put their um, views forward and their uh, memories of that time forward as well as mine. So I think it's a pretty good overall picture. And say in Australia, obviously, picked that book up in 2005 uh, and made it um, their book of the year, which is quite a privilege. Uh, Creating the awareness through writing the book, doing the speaking circuits that you're doing, talking publicly about... Uh, what's happened to you and the challenge that you've faced 
I mean, it's, uh, it's such a great example of leadership from a lived experience about getting the word out there and showing that the stigma needs to be reduced and, and to create the awareness for this because we need more leaders like yourself who are out there and who aren't afraid to tell their story. Uh, it must have taken some courage. Look, I suppose the answer is yes to that question. But so many times I've had people in the last 20 years say, gee, it's a brave thing that you've done. It's a courageous thing that you've done to speak publicly about the... It's tougher to go through the experience than to speak about the experience. You know, that was the tough bit, you know, that surviving that experience, the depression, which was overwhelming. To be suicidal is scary. It's really scary because you don't actually want to die. Well, from, and from my experience of, of suicidal thinking, I did not want to die. I wanted to live, but I didn't want to continue to suffer. And that's where the suicide, uh, suicidal thinking came from, from my point of view. So it was, uh, to be in that place is, is incredibly scary. And to recover from it and to be able to look back, you think, well, I remember after around about 2003, which is about the time we started to prepare to write the book, and someone, a good friend of mine, um, Tony Southwood, his sister Jane, they'd grown up in Newcastle, but Jane was then a publisher with Random House in yes. Sydney. They knew of the story. They knew of the story and Jane rang and said, will you do a book about this? And initially I said no. And it took me a year to actually warm to the idea that I would. And at that stage I was ready. And the reason I was ready is was because I was angry. And I wasn't angry because I missed the Olympics. I was angry because there was no, um, there was no information out there for others. There was no real awareness awareness um, for other people and families and the next individual. I thought, well, the story needs to be told and I'm ready to tell it, I'm ready to tell my story. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, mate, that's, it's certain that it takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of courage, but also the vulnerability. You put yourself in a position mm. where uh, you're telling everyone about what's happened to you, to you personally. Um, but all this, I mean, obviously it's, it's obvious that it's with the sole purpose of raising the awareness, reducing the stigma around having a shame about having a mental health condition, uh, but also trying to help, uh, I guess, other people diagnose or realize some symptoms mm, if they're, if they're yeah. experiencing these things. Is that, is that what's driving you on your mission at the moment? Yeah. It's, it's pretty simple for me. It's, it was two choices, whether to go public or not, whether to write about the experience or not, whether to talk publicly about the experience or not. And it was two choices. It's either be part of the solution or part of the problem. So if I was to be part of the problem, I say nothing. And because the part of the problem, the problem is the silence and the problem is the stigma and the problem is the non story sharing, experience sharing, doesn't happen most of the time. So I wanted to be part of the solution. So the part of the solution was to be open about the experience. So I got to a point where I didn't care what anyone else thought about 
my experience. I didn't care. I was comfortable with what had happened. It, I wasn't going to change it. It had happened. So getting to that point where I didn't care, uh, the opinions that matter to me are the opinions of the people who are close to yes. me, the close circle. Yes. If, if someone doesn't know me and they think less of me because of the fact that I've got a mental illness and I had this experience, then they can think that. I can't, I can't change that. that. No. Hmm. no, that's, I mean, such a, a great attitude to have and to be part of the solution uh, is, is inspiring because you've done now over 400 appearances uh, talking about this. As you talk about it each time, is, is, it, is it something that's difficult to keep talking about or because of the passion and the drive and the vision you have of helping others to be part of the solution, is that what gets you up on the stage each time to go uh, and talk to people, to interview, to do, to do these um, public gigs that you're, that you're so kindly donating your time towards? Every time I get behind a microphone, it's no chore. It's, I'm passionate about it. I, I don't feel as though it's a burden, you know. Sometimes I have to say no because yes. I can't do everything, do everything and I, I'll recognise that because I'll put my own mental health at risk if I say <laughs> I'm going to talk every day or I'm going to talk every, even every week. But I, I'm still as passionate today about um, you know, t- telling the story. And the story, the, the talk I was doing 15 years ago is quite different to the talk I do today. A lot of the focus now, sure, I tell the story, I set the story up. I set the story up from you know, prior to the illness, the, the episode, and then post-episode. But a lot of the messages now are around the correct diagnosis. They are around lifestyle choices. They are around the importance of how you can not only manage a severe bipolar disorder, but you can thrive. You can thrive. You can not just manage it. I'm about not just managing my illness. I'm about staying well and doing every single thing in life that I want to do. And to do that, I have to be well, and I work at that every day. And, and for people that are, are going through a similar condition to what you're going through... What would you say to them that, are cha- that have the challenging times? What, what's, what's the key things that, that you've done to help manage and to thrive, as you're saying, uh, and not just survive? The first thing would be own the problem, own the illness, it's yours. And that took me a long time to get to that point. There, there's always gonna be blame and, you know, it's this, you know, it's someone's fault here. It's someone else's fault there. I had that episode at school. Um, my parents, uh, you know, did this, did that. Whatever it is, people go through some horrendous things in life, some horrendous traumas, and we know now that a lot of those traumas can play out into mental illness later in life. So if you have the awareness that you can, your brain can change. I have no doubt about that. But you've got to give it the you've got to give it the right environment to um, to thrive. So the number one is to own the illness, um, own the problem, and then look to educate yourself about how you can best stay well. And a big part of that 
is medication. Seeking help. From seeking help, seeking help, getting the right diagnosis. Know that if it's bipolar one, that medication is an important part of staying well. Now I know through my own experience that I haven't always been compliant. Um, I went seven years without another episode from 2000, but I had another episode in 2007. And that was largely due to being non-compliant with medication. I thought I was okay. I wow. thought I'd got through the, you know, I'm no longer bipolar, you know? Look at this, seven years, I'm really well. And then six months after I decide it's a good idea not to take uh, my medication that I'm unwell again. So right. that's the, and don't be embarrassed about it. Yeah. And you know, don't be ashamed about it. The stigma's coming down every day and let's work at continuing to do that. And as a mental health advocate for, uh, for say 15 years or so now, how, uh, how have you seen it change? How have you seen mental health awareness uh, or uh, the stigma reduce, obviously, since, since that time? But how have you seen the changes and has it been for the better? Oh, it's definitely been for the better and the change is there, but gee, it's been slow. It really has. And if we look, I, I think if we could project ourselves 10 years forward from now or 20 years forward from now, we'll look back at this time as... Um, you know, archaic, our, our attitudes and the way we've treated people with mental illness and the services, the, the resources that have been given to um, our mental health system is busted, it's broken, it's fractured and it needs to improve. But I think most, most people, most of our decision makers haven't got a clue how to fix it. And throwing money at it, just throwing money at it, without having a strategic plan of what we're trying to achieve here isn't making a difference because we're seeing money being put into mental health all the time. But if you don't know what you're doing with it, you don't know why you're spending it or what, where you're spending it, then, then it's not going to make the difference that it could. So to answer your question, um, it, we are improving. We are making steps forward. The stigma's coming down. The awareness is going up. The education's going up. As more people tell their stories, that's making a difference. More high-profile Australians, and there's been many across that time, who've told their stories. I think for anyone else, they can look and say, well, gee, if, if it could happen to Gary McDonald, if yes. it could happen to Jessica Rowe, yes. if it could happen to uh, Wally Lewis, Mark Gable, Craig Hamilton, Andrew Johns. Andrew Johns. It could happen to me. With uh, just just the last thing I want to touch on is what sort of opportunities? Where do you think the attention needs to go in the future? So moving forward, mm. knowing we are where we are right now, mm. what suggestions or what solutions or what approach do you think that they should be starting at as far as to make sure that we progress mental health? Mm. Uh, in a faster, uh, faster pace than what we're currently going at. So who's they? The government? Well, government, NGOs, I guess. I mean, do, do you think it needs more of a collaborative approach? Absolutely. Uh, between all the sectors? That's the word. Okay. That's the word, collaborative. We don't have that. We have, uh, we have um, you know, so many great organisations. You know, you've got Beyond Blue, you've got Black Dog Institute. Uh, you know, they're two of the main bodies, I suppose. Your mental health association, you've got, 
you know, grow. You've got all sorts of different organisations who are, you know, fighting away at different fronts. I think for the for it to be successful and for really to to us for to move forward, that's fine. But let's have an overarching policy. Get, I've thought about this before. Get all the key players around the table. Yes. Get Ian Hickey around the table. Get Pat McGorry yes. at the same meeting. Get Georgie Harmon. Get Helen Christensen, Georgie from Beyond Blue. Yes. Helen Christensen from uh, Black Dog Institute. Get a couple of um, lived experience people who want to tell their stories around the room and get the health minister there. Yes. And walk away from, you know, call it a summit if you want to, and walk away after two or three days with a plan. Now, I don't know if that's happened. I don't think it has. People have to leave their egos at the door and walk in there and come up with some, some sort of way forward and a, and a structure. If I could change one thing uh, now, yes. uh, apart from doing that, it would be to improve acute services straight away. So, so if anyone presents in a crisis, they get a bed, they get assessed, and they get the treatment they need straight away. Yes. I mean, it's a disgrace in 2019 that that doesn't happen, that has the potential not to happen. If someone comes into an emergency ward and they've got uh, their leg amputated, their arm amputated, it's, it's a given. They don't go out, the, you know, they don't get taken home yeah. because we've got no beds, because it's life-threatening. Yet in the mental health space, you can be suicidal. You can be absolutely suicidal, yet, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And maybe sometimes we don't think you're that bad. Mm. Well, well, that's not what we do. Yeah. It's, so we need a big shift there as well. Well, Craig, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, I guess on behalf of the mental health sector, we obviously appreciate and thank you for the work that you're doing. We need more leaders like you out there that are leading the charge, sharing their stories from lived experience, uh, because they should be at the heart of what's happening moving forward. And so uh, I think there is a big role for lived experience to play moving forward. And we do need more people like yourself out there telling their stories and sharing that awareness. And for that... I thank you for that leadership that you're doing uh, and the courage that you've taken to talk not only to me but to, to the number of people that you've spoken to before and sharing your story. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast and we appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.